Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. Mark chapter 2. I want to talk to you today about the gift of gathering. If you want to open up your Bibles, the scriptures will be up on the screen, but we'll be in Mark chapter 2. They told me that it was small group weekend, and I love small groups. I love talking about small groups. I love being a part of small groups because small groups are significant. Small groups is not something that the church made up. Small groups is something that is found in the Bible. It's in the book of Acts. It says that the people, they came together at the temple. They gathered together at church, but they also went house to house. It's a picture of how they had small groups throughout the community. Church is more than 75 minutes on Sunday morning. It's more than that. This is where we come together and we gather in the name of Jesus and we're encouraged, we're equipped, we're taught, we're mobilized, we're prepared, but we go out throughout the week and we actually walk out the calling that God has given to us in his word. And we gather together. It's it's a gift that we have to gather together. And small groups are a gift that we have to have relationships in community. And it's so critical that we understand this, that, that it's not about us, but it's about what Jesus wants to do in us and through us. I've seen so many people who have come to small group for one reason, but they found that God brought them for a different reason. I've seen so many people who have come to church looking for one thing, and God brought them something that they really needed. There's what we want, and there's what we need. And I want to tell you this. God cares about both what you want and what you need, but he cares more about what you need. And we learn in the book of Mark that Jesus is in town and that Jesus comes to town and that everyone begins to gather, that everyone begins to come to this house. It's not a church service. It's a very big, small group. The house is packed. It's so packed that people can't even get in. But what's interesting is in Luke, it's told in both Mark and Luke, there's two different perspectives of the same story. In the book of Luke, it says that they had come from every village of Galilee, from Judea and Jerusalem. That people heard about Jesus and they began to gather. When people hear about Jesus, they're drawn to Jesus. The scripture says it this way, that God God is drawing all men, all women unto him. It says that they came from these different cities. It's almost as if it were to say it this way, to modernize it. They came from Youngsville, Opelousas, New Iberia, Midtown, and they gathered together. It's a picture of how we come together and we gather, not about ourselves, but around Jesus. And then when we gather around Jesus, the place begins to fill. Mark 2, verse 2 says, they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left. It was packed. It was packed. No one could get in the house, and God's sharing the word. Now, it's interesting because it says as Jesus is sharing with them in Luke 5, verse 17, same story, different gospel. It says that the power of the Lord was present to heal. That as people are gathering around Jesus, people are circling around Jesus, the place is filling up, the place is overflowing, that that not only is Jesus there, but power is there. And power is there because Jesus is there. And sometimes what happens is we can forget that we want the power, but we want the power without Jesus sometimes. Sometimes. 
And the reality is the power only comes with Jesus. Healing only comes from Jesus. Forgiveness only comes from Jesus. You can't, this is what the world wants to do. It wants to take Christ out of the equation. Antichrist means simply this, instead of Christ. The world is trying to replace Christ. You can't replace my Jesus. He's not replaceable. And so he's there, he's in the center, all eyes are on him, they're focused on him, he's teaching them the truth, he's teaching them the word, and it says that the power of God is present to heal. Here's the first point, there is power when we gather. There's power when we gather. Why? Because Jesus is present. Jesus put it this way in the book of Matthew, for when two or three or two or more are gathered in my name, I'm there. And if he's there, the power's there. So here's the question I want us to ask ourselves this week. Here's the question I want you to ask yourself today as you think about the message, maybe as you talk over lunch. Have I invited Jesus into the relationships and the moments and the situations of my life? Because I've met so many Christians who invite Jesus into their heart, but they don't invite Jesus into their life. And sometimes it's, it's, hey, God, I got this. Hey, God, I'm going to do everything that I can to take care of this. And then if all else fails, then I'll look to you on my knees crying out. I've seen so many people, I've even experienced it in my own life, where I was foolish enough to say, God, I got this. I'll figure it out. Anyone ever been there, got that T-shirt, got a few of them in your closet? Yeah. So, God, I got this. Life has taught me I don't got this. Marriage has taught me, I don't got this. Parenting has taught me, I don't got this. Finances has taught me, I don't got this. Friendships have taught me, I don't got this. Life has taught me, I need Jesus. And if you think that you don't, God in his mercy will allow you to learn even the hard way that you need Jesus. And it's not God being mean. It's God being merciful. And we've got to invite Jesus into the center of our life. You know, in uh, my home, we have a two and a half year old and an 11 month old son. And it is quite a handful. Any parents of young toddlers in the room know what I'm talking about? Pray for me. I'm praying for you. We'll fast for one another. We'll just believe that we're going to get through this season together. My two and a half year old, her name is Sophia. She is both beautiful and full of spunk, just like her mama. She's got attitude for days. And like, she, she loves to be bossy. She got that from me, Pastor. She's got a little controlling side. She's a little bossy. And, and she loves to tell us what to do. And we're trying to parent her and she's trying to parent us. And so one of the things that we've been trying to do as parents, I, I kid you not, over the last year, we've been teaching our daughter how to pray. And I wish that I could sit up here and say, well, you know, I'm a pastor and my kid just prays really great. You know, she's praying in tongues at two and a half, yada, yada, yada. No, that's not true. She's two and a half. She's just like every other two and a half year old. My kid hits and bites too, just like yours. We've been trying to teach her how to pray. We've been modeling for her what it looks like to invite Jesus into the center of the situation, into the midst of our home. And when you do that, it begins to change things. When, when a husband and a wife invite Jesus into the center of their marriage, his power comes because he's present and things can begin to change. When we bring our kids together and we begin to invite Jesus into the center, things can change because Jesus is present. Jesus is invited. Jesus loves to be invited into your life. 
Jesus is a gentleman. He's not going to force his way in, but he's going to stand at the door knocking, waiting till you let him in. And he wants us to invite him. So we're teaching our daughter how to pray. It's not going well. She's uh, fighting us. She says, no, I don't want to. Does anyone have kids who do stuff like that with the attitude? And they get like all snarly and they curl up their lips. Maybe that's just my child. Pray for me. And we've been working with her. We've been trying to model it to her. We've been trying to teach her, hey, baby, there's power when you pray. We believe in Jesus. We look to Jesus. We don't look to ourselves. We'll do our Bible stories every night. And it just feels like day after day after day, we're making no progress. It just feels, I'm just being honest with you. I'm not going to get up here and lie. It's been a grind until daddy got a boo-boo. It was last week, Pastor. I hurt my finger doing the laundry. It's a true story. I'm not making this up. I, I cut my hand on the washing machine. And I said to my wife, see, this is a sign from heaven that this is not my calling. Baby, you need to do the laundry. I'll do the trash. Didn't work. I still do the laundry. And I iron very well. But my daughter comes up to me as I have my little boo-boo right here that's still healing and it's bleeding. And she says, pray for your boo-boo, dada. And I'm like, I thought maybe we were about to be raptured, Pastor. <laughs> I, thought, I thought, is Jesus coming back right now? She begins to pray for my boo-boo. She lays a hand on my boo-boo. And she says, Jesus, thank you for Dada's boo-boo. I know it's not grammatically correct, but I was taking it in the moment. I was such a proud dad. She goes, amen. And then she kisses it. But I want you to catch this. This was the most powerful moment for me. This is where God was speaking to me, even as he was encouraging me. She said, all better now? Like the childlike faith Jesus talks about, she was teaching me. Like she expected, boom, God to move. Why? Because she's spoken. She knows death and life are in the power of her tongue. And she was expecting to eat of that fruit. (laughs) And it's in that moment where it's like as as a child, she just knows because we've taught her that God moves. And so she was inviting God into the moment. She couldn't fix my finger, but she was believing that as she prayed, she would see the result that she was declaring by faith. And I believe that as parents and even as grandparents, as Pastor Jacob talked about, it's our responsibility to teach the next generation how to invite Jesus into the midst. And sometimes, sometimes we can get frustrated. I've, I've, talk, I've pastored many generations. Sometimes we can get frustrated with one generation and we can try to be maybe divided as generations, but it's God that's calling the generations to come together and unite. It's God that's calling the older generation to pour into the younger generation and the younger generation to respect the older generation that paved the way for them. And here's what the enemy's looking to do. He's looking to divide. He divides generations. He divides races. He tries to divide genders. He tries to divide by economics. He, he will use anything and everything to divide. If Jesus wants to unite us under him, what the devil wants to do is divide all of us from him. And Jesus told you and Jesus told me in Matthew 12 that every kingdom divided amongst itself will not stand. He says it. He says that every city or family, your scripture might say household, your scripture might say home, every family that is divided against itself will not stand. 
The goal of the enemy is to divide your family and my family, to divide us from Christ and to divide us from one another. Why? Because the enemy knows that when we unite under Christ, the Bible puts it this way, if one can put a thousand to flight, two can put 10,000 to flight. The enemy knows that when we come together and we gather in the name of Jesus, there is more power together than separate. And so hell rages. The goal of the enemy is to destroy the unity of the church because the church is what God has put in place on the earth to represent Christ. We are the bride of Christ. And Jesus begins to talk about how if we're divided, we'll fall. Now, the religious people in that time, they were always coming up against Jesus and they would say this crazy stuff. They, they began to accuse Jesus. You can read it in Matthew 12, 26. They began to accuse Jesus of healing people and casting out demons by being a demon himself. It was one of the dumbest arguments possibly in the entire Bible that they would make. They'd say, oh, well, you're, you, have to, you can only cast out devils because you're a devil. Oh, and Jesus is like, yeah, that makes absolutely no sense. Why would the devil cast out his own devils? You, you, you sound dumb right now, he was basically saying to the religious leaders. He was much nicer about it, but that's basically what he was saying. And he begins to talk to them. It's in verse 26, 27, 28. And he begins to talk to them. He says, I don't drive out demons by, by Beelzebub, a prince of demons. But, but if I, and he begins to talk to them and he says that it's by the spirit of God. I'm sorry if you can bring up the next slide. It's by the spirit of God that I drive out demons. It's the spirit of God. It's the power of God that drives out demonic strongholds in your life and mine. It's the power of God that frees us from addiction. It's the power of God that restores marriage. It's the power of God that brings our kids and brings our family members to Jesus. It's not us, it's the power of God. Now then Jesus poses this really interesting question. He says to the religious leaders, or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can plunder his house. You're a strong man and a strong woman, why? Because you have Christ in your life. Now, the enemy already knows that he's lost the battle for your soul if you've given your life to Jesus. You're saved. You've given your life to Christ. You're covered by the blood of Jesus. We celebrated that today in communion. Pastor Chris led us in it. But he knows this. If he can tie us up, he can rob us of everything that God has for us in his relationship with us. And so what does the enemy try to do? He tries to tie us up in our marriage. He tries to tie us up in our parenting. He tries to tie us up in our friendships. He tries to tie us up in our finances. He wants to tie us up so that he can rob from us what God has for us. And I just want to share with you real quick, there's three ways that the enemy tries to tie you and I up. Real simple ones. There's more, but these are just simple ones. Number one is fear. He uses fear to try to get us to be immobilized, to try to get us to be paralyzed. He wants us to run from God rather than to run to God. But the scripture says that you and I are not given over to a spirit of fear, but that we are given over to love, power, and of a sound mind. Fear is not your portion, church. He tries to divide us with hate. He wants you to hate me and he wants me to hate you. He wants women to hate men. He wants people who are African-American, Hispanic, and white to hate one another. He wants people who are rich and poor to hate one another. He wants people who are young and old to hate one another. He wants people to hate people. Why? Because God's called us to love one another. He uses hate. And then he uses religion. He tries to utilize religion where we get focused on ourselves rather than on Jesus. Where we make it all about works and what we can do and what we can achieve and what we can earn rather than the finished work of the cross where Jesus earned for us what we couldn't earn for ourselves. 
And the danger of religion is this. It takes the focus off of Jesus and puts all the focus on me. The root of religion is pride. Where we say, you know what? It's no longer about Jesus, it's about me. Hear my heart, I love you. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's all about Jesus. And only Jesus has the power to help us, here's a key thought, break free from what has held us down. He wants to help us break free from what has held us down. Maybe you need freedom in your marriage. Maybe you need freedom from addiction. Maybe you need freedom in your finances. I believe this with my whole heart. Everyone needs freedom. I have been in freedom small groups. I have led freedom small groups. I preach at the freedom conference at our church. I recommend to anyone and everyone, if you haven't been through freedom, I know you think, oh, the church is just telling me to check off a box, yada, yada, yada. No, it is the number one best curriculum. I have seen it change the lives of hundreds of people. I have seen people who had addiction find freedom. I've seen people with hurting marriages be restored. I've seen people who've had troubles and traumas from their past, from parents or aunts and uncles that abused them, find the fullness of freedom. Jesus gives us freedom for eternity at the cross, but he offers us more than that. Jesus wants us to walk in the fullness of freedom every day of our life, and we have to choose to receive it. And so I encourage you, I encourage you, if you haven't been in a freedom small group, get in one. It's my number one favorite, most recommended small group is a freedom group. Change your life. But a lot of people won't get in a group. A lot of people won't gather together because there are barriers in the way. Point number two, we have to press past the barriers to gather. We gotta press past about 20 minutes ago, I told you in the beginning of the story about how Jesus came into this room and it was really crowded. Now, as he's in this room, there's something taking place outside of the room that nobody in the room knows about. There's four friends who hear that Jesus is in town and they have a friend who's paralyzed. They have a friend who is not able to walk. They have a friend who is not able to move and they care about their friend. They care about their friend so much that they stop what they're doing and they go and they find him and they pick him up and they bring him with intentions of placing him at the feet of Jesus. Now we learn in the scripture in verse four that they couldn't get to Jesus because of the crowd. That it probably took them so long to go get their friend and carry him that they were willing to give up their seat in the house so that they could go get their friend. And then they get to this house and they can't get in. Let's be honest right now. A lot of times we're so busy thinking about ourselves, we forget to think about others around us. And the gospel tells you and me, it's in the book of Galatians, Galatians 6-2, that we're to carry the burdens of one another and in such we fulfill the law of Christ. It's not just about us, it's about us caring about those around us that God has placed in our life. And it says that they get to this house and they can't get in. They can't get in. There's a barrier. So what do they do? They start climbing. Now, I have no idea how this would have gone down. I can't imagine four guys carrying someone who's paralyzed up on a roof. I can't imagine this was safe. Like, I seriously doubt that they had a ladder, that they had a pulley system, that they had a plan in place. I'm pretty sure if it was four guys, I'm gonna guess they were winging it like most of us do. And they were just, they were going for it. 
And they said, we're gonna get our friend in front of Jesus no matter what it takes. What I love about this picture is that Christians should be creative. The world is looking for ways to stop us from spreading the gospel. We need to look for creative ways to spread the gospel anywhere and everywhere. And so these dudes climb up on the roof. They make the climb. Sometimes in your life, there's things that God's gonna call you to climb. Metaphorically speaking, there are mountains that God's gonna call you to climb. And it might feel lonely when you climb those mountains because other people aren't willing to make the climb. But if you make the climb that God calls you to, you'll experience things that others don't. And then they get up on the roof and they begin to dig. It's an interesting because the Bible goes into detail and says that they dig through the roof. Sometimes God's gonna call you to dig in your word because there's things that God wants to show you that if you don't go dig in your word, you won't find. But God has prepared you and your heart. He wants to reveal to you by the power of the Holy Spirit what you need that's personal for you. You see, right now, I'm, I have the privilege of speaking to the church corporately. We come together and we gather corporately, but God can speak to you personally. God will speak to you as you read your word. God will speak to you as you're part of your small group. God will minister to you. He's not just the God of Sunday. He's God every day. And it says that they dig through the roof and that they lower this man before Jesus. I I really don't know how they did it. I hope that they had ropes and they didn't just drop him, but they get him before Jesus. They get down on the ground in front of Jesus and it says that Jesus sees their faith. Not just his faith, their faith. And he looks at this man, and I know you're thinking he probably says get up and walk, but he doesn't. He shocks the room. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Okay, that's interesting, Jesus. Came for a healing, and you're here forgiving. This isn't what I wanted, but maybe it's what I needed. Now, some of the religious people, some of the teachers, some of the Pharisees in the room, they begin to question what's going on. And they're thinking to themselves, why is this guy talking like this? Why does this fellow talk like that? Basically, they're saying, who does this Jesus guy think that he is? Only God can forgive sins. Newsflash, Jesus is God. Always was, always is, always will be the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it's only Jesus that can forgive your past and my past. There's nothing that you or I can do to earn it. He did it at the cross. And he's... Can you bring that scripture back up real quick, Mark 2, verse 5 through 7? I want to share something with you that's interesting. It says that they were thinking to themselves... The New King James Version will say that they were reasoning in their hearts or they were reasoning in their mind. And sometimes I want to give you this key thought. Our reasoning, if you can bring it on the screen, is often our biggest resistance. We can begin to reason with God and to try to put God in a box. My grand pastor says it to me this way. He says, Stephen, your three worst counselors are me, myself, and I. And that's so true. Because... Every single one of us has been a special flavor of dumb at least one point in our life. And it's, and it's, it's the truth. And we begin to reason with God. We begin to negotiate with God. We try to barter with God. Ever been in your prayer life and you're trying to negotiate with God as if like you've got a better plan than God? And here's the reality. It won't show up on the screen. When you reason with God, all you do is rob yourself in your relationship with God. We rob ourselves 
of the better that God has for us. So many Christians settle for less when God has something better. And they're sitting there and they're in this room and they're reasoning in their hearts, they're reasoning in their minds, and they're trying to discourage Jesus from forgiving this man. Jesus is the Messiah that they've been praying for. The Savior that they needed, but not the Savior that they wanted. And he's there in the room and he's forgiven this man. He gave this man what he needed, but it wasn't what they expected. And the Bible says that Jesus then begins to look at these religious people and he challenges them. He asks them this question. He says, which is easier? To say to the paralytic, to say to the man who has never walked in his life, your sins are forgiven or walk for the first time, which is, which is easier to do. And Jesus looks at them and he says, I want you to understand something. That the son of man has the power to both heal and forgive. Basically, this is what Jesus was saying. Don't put me in a box. Don't put me in a box. You trust God with your marriage, he can heal your marriage. You trust God with your kids, he can lead your kids to him. You trust God with your relationships, he can bring you the right friends that you need for your future. You trust God in your finances with your tithe, with the first 10%, he'll lead you in your finances. Me and my wife, we made the decision that we're gonna put God first in every area of our life. And this is the determination we made. God can do more with 90% than Stephen can do with 100%. And it's just trust. Well, we trust him in every area of our life. And so he looks at these guys and he says, which is easier, to heal him or to forgive him? Now he knows that he's all in all, he can do both. So he looks at the man and he says, get up, walk, and go home. So the man gets up, he walks, and he goes home. Now, sometimes when we read the Bible, if we read too quickly, we can miss that the story's actually not over. There's one more sentence we'll get to in a second. Before I do, third point, there's something personal for everyone who gathers. There's something personal for everyone who gathers in the name of Jesus. Mark 2, verse 12, we'll close with the scripture. It says in our Bible that immediately he arose and he took up his bed. And he went out in the presence of them all. And that this amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. It says that the man got up and that he left and that he was praising God and that all were amazed. If you study that Greek word all, if you, you know, have you ever seen my people do Greek studies, that Greek word for all, it means all. I do that all the time because my dad actually knows Greek and I have no idea because he didn't teach me. So I act like I'm going to say something profound and it's not, Pastor. That word all, it literally just means all. And that includes you. That includes me. If we gather. You see, if you read it specifically in verse 12, it says this amazed everyone and they praised God. This amazed all that were there, but there were people that didn't show up and they didn't get to experience what everyone that was there got to experience. 
And sometimes we won't press past the barrier. Sometimes we won't press past the obstacles that come in our way. And we will rob ourselves from what God wants to do when we press past the barriers. Sometimes those barriers that the enemy tries to use to defeat you are the very barriers that God uses to develop you into the man or woman he's called you to be. And it says that all were amazed and began to praise God. He said, we've never seen anything like this. We've never seen anything like this. We've, we've never experienced anything like this. What did they never experience before? Had they never seen a healing? Jesus did healings all the time. Jesus performed miracles on the regular if you read the gospel. What had they never seen? Was it, was it the forgiveness of sins? Maybe it was that. Maybe they had never seen a man forgiven. Maybe they had never seen a man healed. Maybe they had never seen both. Maybe they experienced something that they never expected. And here's what I realized. This is the revelation God gave me in my prayer life. Sometimes what we want from God isn't what we need most. And sometimes we go into a situation expecting this, but God really desires to do that. And as God begins to do that, we can get disappointed or frustrated with God. And I have found myself in my own life sometimes becoming critical of God in my spirit because God's doing something that I would prefer he do this, but he desires to do that. And it's in those moments, just like Jesus in the garden, we have a choice to make. Is it gonna be my way or is it gonna be God's way? Is it gonna be his will or am I gonna force my preference? We have a choice. Are we gonna choose to trust him? Are we gonna choose to trust ourselves? Because Jesus was the savior that they needed. You know, a week before he died, he came into the city and they threw a party. Palm branches galore. It was like a Jewish Mardi Gras. Kind of? No, not really. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) I've never been to Mardi Gras. I don't know. They're having a party. They're excited. They're praising Hosanna in the highest. They think that Jesus is coming to free them from Caesar. That Jesus is coming to free them from the taxes that they were having to pay. They think that Jesus was coming to rescue them from the government. I know we'd all like to be rescued from taxes in the government. That's what they thought Jesus was coming for. But then when they realized he came for something different, a week later they killed him. They killed him same people that praised him killed him why because he didn't give them what they wanted he was giving them what they needed and sometimes in your heart and in my heart we can be guilty of cutting off or maybe killing relationship with God sometimes in our prayer life because he gives us what we need and it's not what we want and what we need is Jesus and what he wants It's not about what I want. It's not about what you want. It's about what he wants to do and what he needs to do on this earth. May his kingdom come and his will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. Amen, church? Let me pray with you. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the greatest miracle, the one that we all need, the cross. Your greatest miracle wasn't a healing of a blind man, a paralytic. It wasn't leprosy. It wasn't even raising someone from the dead. God, the greatest miracle was the cross. You were the gift and the altar. And you didn't have to do it. 
you wanted to do it. You wanted to go. You said to God, it says in Hebrews, here I am, the one that you've written about in your scrolls, God. I've come to do your will. Jesus, you wanted to go to the cross for all of us. The Bible says that God desired that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. God sent Jesus so that everyone would have the opportunity to choose him. And Lord, may we all choose you. In Jesus' name, amen.